And now we are joined by Michael Dunham, who was the host of Real Music, Real Talk. Everybody knows him from that. He's got a huge following, not just here at WPKN, but also on Facebook. I'm one of his followers. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Rich. How you doing, sir? I'm very happy to have you. First thing I want to ask you is, you stepped away from your regular time slot with Real Music, Real Talk, and yeah. I think you're trying to figure out where you might go from here with WPKN and maybe pick up a slot that works better for your lifestyle. Yeah, I've been doing, I've been doing some fill-in work here and there. I was actually asked to do one tomorrow night, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do so. Try to get in when I can fit in. I got you on my call list for fill-ins for this show. I want to ask you, since you did a really interesting commentary on uh, election night for our election coverage, which I, with your permission, will play in a minute. Because sure. it's very short, and it kind of sets us up for this conversation. How are you feeling since the election? Well, I'm, personally, I'm, I'm relieved, but there's so much work that has to be done. I think the biggest battle has been won. Then we got to now work, wait, wait for the carnage that's on the battlefield. And then going forward, when the transition does take place, there's another battle or a series of battles that the president-elect will have to have with his own with his own party, um, but I am definitely relieved. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that this this guy is on his way out. I have a little bit of trepidation about what may happen in terms of some idiots calling themselves uprising, you know, and 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 basically in the name of of Trump, the the Trumpers, I guess you can say. Um, but I'm but I'm starting to also get the impression that a lot of these people are slinking back down into the holes from which they emerged in the first place. And I think there's a lot. I think now that their their megaphone, their human megaphone, their their gaslighter, uh, their carnival barker is is on the way out. I think a lot of them will be on the on the way out as well. But you got you got some you got some nuts out there that you you really have to worry about. I totally agree with you. And you know we could list some of them. Proud Boys, uh, Oath Takers, oh, yeah. the Boogaloo Boys, you know, they've been turn, mm -hmm. turning up and, and creating mayhem at, at exactly. the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. And this is the real terrorist threat, I think, that America faces. And I hope the FBI is, is on their mettle to... Uh, uh, yeah, I hope so, too. One, one thing I've... I get the impression that these guys have a tendency to wreak havoc where they can get away with it. There are certain places that I think they just cannot go. There are certain inner cities that they cannot go to. Hmm. Um, so I think they, they picked this spot. So I think there's, there's some cowardice in, uh, involved as well. Michael, I'd like now, as I said, with your permission, to go to your commentary from election night. I think it's kind of interesting to hear your voice back then and, yeah. and to continue the conversation tonight. So I'll uh, just go right to that. Forgive me for including a little musical intro, which was there on election night as well. is what I would like to say from a commentary standpoint, I think this is without a doubt the most important election of our lives. And um, as a man of color 
who feels the weight of the skin I'm in, as well as the greatness of the skin I'm in on a day-to-day basis, and also a man who's lost his mother and sister-in-law eight days apart due to COVID, uh, due to the total lack of leadership, empathy, the politicizing of a pandemic that will kill millions if this leadership is not changed. This is a matter of life and death, not only with COVID-19, but also the Postal Service, the, the Supreme Court, law enforcement, white supremacy, uh, the cult that has enveloped the right, making them virtually sinister with this Carnival Barker game show host at the top. This guy, and we must not forget this guy has the nuclear codes. That in and of itself is scary due to the serious character flaws of this racist. Not only that, if he loses, we must remain aware, awoke, and vigilant because he is still the occupant until January 20th, 2021. You know, we're living in dangerous times, made more so by an individual who has no soul and at his very uh, core is an infantile coward, a schoolyard bully whose power is further is further magnified by a group of sycophants who enable his every ridiculous move because of their fear of him, which I've never understood, and desperation to remain in power. Here's hoping that we have new leadership, and while they're not perfect, they are most necessary. Mm. Those are my thoughts. Michael Denham, a producer here at WPKN, uh, sharing his experience and thoughts on this historic day, as he said. Okay, Michael, so there it is, and I think it sets us up nicely to have a conversation about uh, this period leading up to the inauguration on the 20th of January, but also what might happen after that with the new administration. I wonder where we should begin with this, because you you did mention there's going to have to be a lot of activism, a lot of pressure on that administration to get it to do some of the things that I personally, my associates, people of my uh, political suasion, let's say, across all racial lines, want to happen. And specifically, Biden said in his first post-election speech that he knows that black people had his back, and there's no doubt about that. They uh, basically handed him a a victory in in key battleground states. But black people had his back, and he said, he acknowledged it, and he said, now he's going to have their backs. So what do you think about that pledge to black people? Do you believe it? And what would it entail in terms of the type of programs and the type of transformation that has to happen in the system that generates white supremacy and black impoverishment and deprivation? Well, certainly sounds good. But but I'll say this about uh, President Biden. He seems to be a sincere man. He comes across there's a genuineness about him that, that comes across every time he speaks. Uh, there's a part of me, I'm a, the cynic in me says politicians are going to be politicians no matter what. But I think we, we're going from one end of the spectrum to another now. And I think that, I think it's incumbent upon us to at least listen to what this man has to say. Now, what will that entail? I don't know, but I will say this. There are many people out there that will hold his seat to the fire black women in particular, because black women really held it down for Joe Biden during this election. I'll say this about my my brothers. 12% of black men voted for Trump, which to me in and of itself is very disturbing. I, I can't get that figure out of my mind. Although it's all wood under the bridge now, I'm, I'm, it's, it's kind of disturbing. I just don't see what a black male in particular would see 
voting for this man, particularly when you know he's a racist and, and, and he's made it very, very clear. But I think I'm, I'm hoping and thinking that the 12 percent that voted for him, people who do not who do not know that he's a racist. Then again, how could he not know? In terms of what is tangible, in terms of what uh, President uh, President Biden can do, I think he can start with the job market for people of color. Uh, there, there's a huge disparity in, in salaries in just about every profession, every walk of life. Black men and black women make less money than their white counterparts, and that's, and that's the reality. And, and particularly with, with young people, I think there needs to be a revamping of the, if there is a job training system in this country, if there is not one, there needs, one, there needs to be, there needs, there's one that needs to be implemented in the area of job, job, job training. Now, uh, Trump was always trumpeting what he did for the economy and all these jobs. And the reality is there are many, many jobs that opened up at the bottom. You know, it's a lot of people that have uh, you know, minimum wage jobs. Those are the jobs that really opened up as opposed to jobs for the middle class, uh, jobs that can sustain people who live from paycheck to paycheck. He didn't do that. So, yeah, there's, there's got to be a lot of change on, on the economics uh, front in relation to jobs. How do we get there? I don't know. But I do believe Biden, when he sa- I think he's sincere when he says he's going to have our backs. But, again, I think there will be no shortage of people uh, stepping to President, uh, President Biden with a proposal to to in, in response to his comment that he, he will have our backs, so to speak. Mm. I want to shift a little bit here and, and maybe use that comment you just made as a, as a transition to the question of trying to have some kind of reconciliation, some kind of examination, not just of the Trump years, but of the decades upon decades since Uh, I could refer to all the way back to 1968, the Kerner Commission report, which was released in 68. And the the Kerner Commission report was basically spelled out the causes of what they referred to as the riots that were taking place in Detroit and Los Angeles and in New Jersey and other cities with large black populations. This is 50 years ago, okay, 52 years ago. It blamed the lack of economic opportunity the failed social justice service program, police brutality, racism, suppression, white-oriented media and white supremacy. It basically said, if you have a system in which all these things are occurring, you are going to have uprisings in in cities uh, of those people. And they said it would would happen again. And as, as as we know, as we can tell, it has happened again and nothing has changed 52 years later. And it's probably even more complex now because there are multiple, multiple ethnic groups in this country. Mm. But even with that complexity, it goes back to the same thing. Very simple, black and white. The same scenarios that took place in 1964 are taking place in the year 2020. It leads one to the question of how do we solve this problem? And some people suggest, well, this country needs to have a conversation about race and racism. Somehow or another, we have to heal the wound at a kind of emotional, social connection between different ethnic groups. As the Kerner Commission report suggests, and they're they're basically true, uh, white racism is and is still the catalyst 
you know, today as it was then. Again, they warned it would happen again. And the poverty and institutionalized racism is the powder keg that always sets this off. So as, as far as a conversation, I mean, again, it's a conversation. That, the conversation about the conversation has been taking place for a long time. <laughs> I don't know how this can happen. Me, myself, personally, I always want to sit down and have that conversation. But I do know this. And in, in, in what I found in, in hearing you know, dialogue about this particular conversation is white people, especially those who are privileged and entitled, have a tendency to want to control said conversation when that conversation comes up. And whether it be through media, whether it be through politicians, there will be a yearning to, to control the conversation. But it's, that would be very difficult to do because there will be people who will respond to that in not a kind fashion. I'll, I'll say this. And people try to do it as a man of color, a white person. No one can actually tell me. You cannot define racism for me because you haven't walked in these shoes. Unless you, even if you are married to someone of color, unless you have actually walked in these shoes and, have, and felt the sting, the pain of of racism, whether it be in its subtle forms or its blatant forms. And, and I think, as we know, living in the Northeast, it takes on more of a subtle form on a day-to-day basis. If you have not experienced that, you cannot define racism for me. I had an, inc- I had an incident online a few weeks, weeks ago with a young lady who was basically trying to demand that I define racism to her because I had, a, had an incident that I considered to be dubious, and it had me thinking maybe race was involved. And this young lady was trying to get answers from me, and it wasn't about her anyway. And I had to tell listen, you cannot define, you cannot force me to define racism. And I don't have to define my racism or the racism that I encounter. I don't have to define it to you. I owe you nothing. And come to find out this woman is a friend of WPKN. Get all kinds, I guess. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah. I just wonder if you have I hope the conversation comes. It need, yeah. It's needed. It's, it's certainly needed, but I don't think there are too many people who are, who are mature enough and, and open enough to actually process what they hear from people of color because there are too many people in denial about the systemic racism that is still prevalent today. And, and again, there are syst- systems were put in place during slavery times, and those systems still persist today. And I think the majority of population do not get that, and they may not get it even if we break it down to them. The notion of of a uh, conversation on race, as great as it sounds, and, as, and as, as much as I'd like for it to happen, I just don't know. It seems to me that a conversation has to be accompanied by action. Oh, there's definitely a Remedi- Remediation. Yeah. And, and it brings up the whole question of, you know, people talk about... Reparations. Uh, reparations and, well, you know, the notion of, oh, everybody's going to get a check and all this kind of thing. The reparations are literally, to me, that I would perceive and conceive of would be dismantling of the systemic racism that creates the systems of oppression that, as you said, have continued since, right. well, since slavery, really, but, I mean, yeah. no, no doubt since the 1960s. So the conversation without the concerted effort... To yeah. to change the structures would seem yeah. to me to be yeah these systems these systems have to as as a as part of a 
anything related to reparations, these systems have to be dismantled so we all are equal. So we are all, they, they say we are created equal. No, we're not created equal because we were created, we, but we were seen as at one point as what, three-fifths of humans. So we were not, we were created equal, but we have never been treated equal. And again, that continues today, as you know. You know, when I look around at the, the cities and towns and neighborhoods and school systems in this country, the word that comes to mind to me is apartheid. I know people say, oh, my God, that's South Africa was so much worse and, you know, we've made so much progress. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I grew up in a suburban town in Connecticut. There was literally one black kid in my high school. I didn't know any black kids until I got to college. Right. I recently moved from New Haven, where I lived initially in, you know, probably a 95% black neighborhood. I was the minority in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I moved to another neighborhood, you know, at some point I bought a house. And and then recently I moved to Brantford. I was in the deep sense of diversity in New Haven, moved to Brantford. Yeah. And now I'm back in the town I was brought up in. I'm back in the town with extremely few people of color, a rather manifest racist behavior on the part of many of the residents of that town. And I just wonder how you react to that term apartheid. I mean, every neighborhood divided, separated towns with no black people, towns with no white people, well, this kind of thing. It just seems to me. Thought, I never saw it as that drastic. But, you know, when, when I look at your description, not too far off the mark, um, it's obviously it's just not as blatant. Obviously, it's a different system here. But I I also go back to what my mother said about speaking about Connecticut in general or the Northeast in general. She always referred to it. And as many black people refer to this area, black people from the South, they refer to Connecticut as and and the Northeast in general as up South, whereas basically it's the same. It's the same. It's, it's, It's just as racist as down south, but it's a very practiced and, and very, very subtle way. It's, it's the clandestine, it's cloak and daggers, stab you in the back type of racism where in the south it's a little more blatant. They will let you know where you stand. Well, just to give you an example from the town I live in now, which is Brantford, there's a, I guess it started out as a disabled person's housing project, and it yeah. was started uh, 30 or 40 years ago. The housing there is now dilapidated and needs renovation. In fact, it's in violation of a lot of state guidelines. So in order to get the money from the state to do the renovations, the state said, okay, you have to expand your mandate to include low-income residents. So it's not just people who have disabilities, but people who are financially challenged and who need low-income housing. And yeah. they were going to, I think the expansion was something like, I don't know, 20 units in a 50-unit facility. And those 20 units became a bone of contention for the people that lived in that neighborhood. And they said, oh, no, we don't want those low-income people coming. Low-income, in parentheses, black people from New Haven. <laughs> That's basically what they were saying. They actually put that in the, in, in, in the statement? No, they, didn't, they never said it out loud. But, That's, yeah, that's what they meant. But yeah. that's it was clear. And so this fight has been going on now for four years, I think, since pretty much since I got to that town. And they are in violation. They basically violated a court order 
They said, we're still going to fight this thing. We're not going to put up with it. They went to the planning and zoning board. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of the kind of apartheid that I'm talking about. No, no, no. We don't want to dilute our racial purity in this neighborhood Mm -hmm. by even 20 families. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, and it doesn't change. It's funny. I see it even, and I hate to say it, I see it even as a musician. There's a disparity. Well, for, for one thing, as a as a black musician, I know that there is no, quote-unquote, extensive or solid black music scene in Connecticut. So when you are what I am, which is basically a cover artist, you are basically hampered. You or you're pigeonholed. You're you're basically in a situation where there's only a certain thing you you cannot go. In other words, you can't go deep. You got to keep it basic. You got to keep it simple. And I'm not that kind of musician, so consequently, I probably lose a lot of work. And I guess with all the time that I put in over the years, almost 40 years, I'm like at this point. I'm going to do what I want to do. If I lose gigs, so what? <laughs> you know, it's, it's about the quality, not the quantity. So, you know, I, what I, I mean that to say that the scene is primarily white dominated in terms of white owners and booking agents and that type of thing. And they, they I think there's a lack of understanding or, and, and consequently there's also a lack of support. We don't get enough support from our own people. And basically, again, I don't want to be seen as a jukebox. I'd rather be an artist. So, again, this thing this thing touches people uh, in all different directions. And, and I can only imagine with, obviously, with the pandemic, it's just made it worse. That's for sure. Well, Michael, any last words before we uh, wrap up here? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to January 20th. I'm not as... Well, we got like 40-something, 50 days left with this guy. I'm not as worried as I was initially, you know, with all the warnings and everything. I'm still concerned, and I'm still watching my back. But I think a lot of these people are starting to fall by the wayside. And, I, again, I hope and pray that I'm right. And I hope that no one just gets really stupid <laughs> before we have so we can have a peaceful, uh, a normal transition like we've had of power all these years. This year should not be any different, but we know it is different, unfortunately. Yes, it is indeed. And we, we're we aware of the fact that, in spite of the fact that Joe Biden won an election with more votes than I think a winner has ever gotten, something, yeah. something north of 80 million, Donald Trump got 73 million. I cannot believe it. It's a crazy world. One last note on that note. I was born in McIntosh County, Georgia which is 45 minutes away from Chatham County, which is Savannah, where my father lived all these years. Chatham County went, was totally blue. McIntyre's County was all was blood red. Mm. So, again, it's a town. I came from a small town. So I was born in a small town, and, and I just it, just it was just shocking to see the disparity. And you go up to Atlanta, and all those counties are solid blue. Yeah. Well, we're learning a lot from this past traumatic experience we've been through. I hope we can roll it forward to some real progressive and systemic change in, uh, so. in the years coming. It's been a real pleasure, Michael Dunham, to speak with you. Thank you, Richard Hill, always, man. Let's keep it going. Let's have a you got conversation it. anytime you have thoughts and ideas you want to share. Let me know, and I'll make, okay. a, I'll make the way. All right, we'll talk soon. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Michael Dunham. He is the former host of Real Music, Real Talk. Power to the people. Power to the people.